hear God's word to you, to, to his children. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, uh, how it cuts us so deeply. How as we study your word, your word begins to study us to reveal to us our own hearts, our own lives, and to reveal to us who you are. So we pray for your spirit to come, and I pray for uh, those who are here that you would guide us into all truth. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, this, we are looking at really... This is the last of the parables. We've been looking at Jesus' uh, sermon on the parables in Matthew 13. This is the last of his uh, parables. And uh, in these verses, I think we have um, a a passage describing really the philosophy of ministry of our church. It's really the heart of the philosophy of this whole community. And because one of the major questions that I have to ask as a pastor and that we have to ask as a community of Christians is how do people change? How does a life change? You know, how does someone go from having a life that's kind of about themselves and serving themselves and uh, that's, uh, you know, maybe mean towards other people, self-serving, how does a life go from being like that to a life that is humble before God, loves God, generous to other people, servant-hearted? How does that transition happen? And, uh, you know, of course, a a complete answer to that is complex, but um, one of the most basic beliefs about our church, is that if you simply tell someone you need to be good, you know, you should love God more, you should, uh, you should be nicer to people, you should care for the poor, initially people may be kind of convicted, they may feel kind of guilty, and they might change for a little while, so, you know, maybe six weeks, maybe six months. They might really be, you know, attending to God and attending to other people and giving their lives away. But it will only be for a stint. It will not last. It will not change. That long-term transformation doesn't happen by just telling people you need to be good. Something deeper needs to happen. Because if you just talk about you need to be good, these are God's duties that you need to do, what will either happen is that people will find out that they can't do God's duties, and they'll get very discouraged and get very low, and uh, then they'll stop trying. Or someone will, will think that they can do 
God's duties, and they'll become very proud, and they'll uh, think that they're really good people, and they'll look down on other people. But in either case, an internal transformation is not happening. The, the, it's not true change. Jesus, in these verses that we just read, uh, shows us that the kingdom of God operates on a, different, a very different principle than just telling people to be good. Because um, in these verses, uh, Jesus gives two parables about uh, people, two people who make these very daring, sacrificial acts, right? There's this one guy who finds this field, and he sells all that he has to get the field that has a treasure. And this other guy finds a pearl of great price, and he sells all that he has. And they do these daring, sacrificial acts. There's a tremendous, there's a tremendous amount of risk in what they are doing. And yet, no one told them to do it. Right? No one told them to sell all they had to, to make this. You know, it was something that almost happened spontaneously. Right? And, um, and why is that? They're not guilted into this act. They do it spontaneously. Look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What Jesus is saying is that selling all they had was the most natural thing, the most almost effortless thing to do in the world because it was motivated by joy. There was a joy that was motivating them into this new life. Or as Dale Bruner puts it, he's a commentator on the Gospel of Matthew, he says, joy is the engine of change. The way your life changes is by experiencing joy that is in the Lord. And so, uh, as we seek to be a church where we hope to see people's lives transformed in our church, and that we, our lives would be transformed in this church, um, we need to understand that it is the joy of the gospel that changes people. It's a life-changing joy. And so, this morning, I want to look at six qualities, six truths about joy that we see in this passage, which I know six is a lot, but... Uh, this, if this is this, you know, the core of the whole philosophy of our ministry as a church, we need to think about it in detail. So six truths that we're going to look at from these passages about what is true joy that the Bible describes to us. And the first truth is this, that true joy is hidden. True joy is a hidden joy, right? So you see that in verse 44 again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, then his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now this passage, uh, it, it, this is not a passage about business ethics, right? Here's a guy who knows there's a treasure in the field and doesn't tell the owner and just buys it. That's not Jesus' point of uh, whether this is how you should handle your business practices. Um, what, Je what Jesus is simply trying to illustrate is what joy in God's kingdom is like. And what he says joy in God's kingdom is like is like a hidden treasure. It's a secret. It is a secret joy which I think for many of you should be an encouraging place to start because for many of us, when we think of what is joy, we think of it as being extroverted. You know, you're talkative, you're a very social person, you're kind of the life of the party. And uh, it turns out that this kind of visible joy is not what Jesus is talking about because true joy is a hidden reality because true joy comes from Christ. And where is Christ? Christ is in heaven. He is hidden from us. And so our joy is a hidden truth. It is a secret truth. And actually, if you, if you turn to page three in your bulletin, I, I uh, put... Oh, right. Thanks, man. What a guy. Um, 
If you turn to page uh, three in your bulletin, I put a quote from uh, G.K. Chesterton. This is in Ch Chesterton's great work, Orthodoxy. This is the closing paragraph of the book and where he talks about joy. That's like his final statement as he talks about Christianity. And this is, what, this is what Chesterton says. Read along with me. Joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan. What he means is joy was the kind of this thin thing that was for, in the pagan world, in the unbelieving world, was, you know, it was very visible. Everyone saw it. It was external. It was public. But it was very small. He says, Joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. The tremendous figure who fills the Gospels, Jesus, right, towers in this respect, as in every other, above all the thinkers who ever thought themselves tall, his pathos was natural, almost casual. The Stoics, ancient and modern, were proud of concealing their tears. He never concealed his tears. He showed them plainly on his open face at any daily sight, such as the far side of his native city. Yet he concealed something. Solemn supermen and imperial diplomatists are proud of restraining their anger. He never restrained his anger. He flung furniture down the front steps of the temple and asked men how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. Yet he restrained something. I say it with reverence. There was in that shattering personality a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that he hid from all men when he went up a mountain to pray. There was a something that he covered constantly by abrupt silence and impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon the earth. And I have sometimes fancied that it was his mirth. It was his laughter. It was his playfulness, his joy. Jesus had this gigantic secret joy, is what Chesterton is saying. And uh, actually, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was anointed with the, the, uh, the oil of gladness more than all of his brothers and his companions. And yet we don't have one word hearing about Jesus ever laughing or uh, telling a joke or smiling or anything like that. He had a shyness because this gigantic joy was hidden. And um, I'll tell you that for most of us, how we live is that what's on the exterior, we try to show that we have a joy or a happiness in our life, that things are going well for us, and we're, uh, we're content, and yet we walk around what's internally is actually a gigantic unrest. We are unsettled internally. And uh, actually, for many of us, we ignore that there's a sense of unrest inside of us, and we pre pretend that it's not even there. But true joy is hidden because true joy comes from knowing Christ. And I'll just tell you, you know, when I first became a Christian, uh, I became a Christian uh, on a beach, actually. I was living in, a, in an island in the South Pacific, and I, I remember when I had uh, never read the Bible, I'd never been to church, and there was, uh, on this beach that I lived on, there was this island that uh, went out from the beach so you could kind of walk onto the island. And the island was probably the size of a football field. And when you walked to the far end of the island, it just was this rock point that went out into the ocean, into the Pacific. And, you know, out in the Pacific, it was just this giant sky. And I'd go out there, and I'd read this Bible that I kn knew nothing about. And, you know, this, the sea breeze was coming in, and the sun was shining, and 
I just beheld in God's word. It was filled with just beautiful and strange things that I'd never heard. And I realized that there is a God, and he is real. And he's told us about himself in his word. And he actually walked among us. And he's strange and mysterious. And in that experience of reading God's word and encountering the gospel, I can only describe it as pleasure. There is actually pleasure in knowing God. And it is a secret and hidden pleasure. Psalm 16 says, At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this is, this is the life that God is inviting us into, is to find pleasure in Him. And this is really the beginning of a transformed life, is to find that my pleasure is in the, the person of who God is and the person of Christ. Now, I know from many of you, you may have heard that before, that, you know, through prayer, through Bible reading, you can actually find, you can actually have pleasure in God. There is actually, you know, your desires can be satisfied. And yet you feel discouraged by that, right? Because you say, well, I, I know that, but I can't do it. It just doesn't happen. I don't find that pleasure. It just doesn't happen for me. How do I do it? So this is the second thing, uh, as I try to answer that question that we learn in this passage about true joy, is first of all that it's a hidden truth. Uh, true joy is hidden. It's a secret, gigantic uh, joy. But second, that true joy is a discovery. True joy is something that you discover, or as in this passage says, it describes people who find something. They come upon something that they didn't know was there, and it's this discovery, right? Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered. And uh, verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and uh, sold all that he had and bought it. True joy comes when you discover something new. And I'll tell you, one of the things that is the obstruction to many of us not experiencing the joy that's in God's word, that's, that's in Christ, is because we think we already know all about him, right? You know, maybe that's true if you've grown up in the church and you feel, you know, I've gone to church Sunday after Sunday, day in and day out. I've heard it all before. And there is a sense of pride in that, that I already know all about God. There's nothing new for me to hear. And when there's no discovery, there's going to be no joy. And this, the biggest thing that keeps us from joy is pride. Because, uh, because in pride, uh, we think that we know everything. We think we're in control. We have, we have nothing new to discover. But what does Jesus, how does Jesus say, if you want to come into the kingdom, what, who do you, what do you need to be like? You need to be like a child, right? You need to be like a child. And it's because children don't know anything. They're asking questions. They don't think they know everything. They're asking all kinds of questions. You know, just uh, yesterday, I was driving with my son, Henry. Henry's four, and we went to hardware sales uh, buy some stuff, and uh, on the way home, I was like, Henry, you want to go to the donut store and get some donuts? He's like, yeah, donuts. And we were kind of cutting back to that donut shop over by Bellingham High School, and, uh, but th they had uh, uh, Cornwall all blocked off for the parade. And so I come up and I say, oh, Henry, you know, I don't think we can get to that donut shop. The, you know, it's all fenced off by the police, right? Well, why don't you just, why don't you just run over the police? Why don't you run over the fence? I mean, he's dead serious. He's dead serious. Why don't you run over the police? 
he doesn't know anything. You know, it's a perfectly reasonable question. And so I said, well, Henry, do you think that would be very nice to run over the people so we can get a donut? Oh, yeah, I guess that wouldn't be very nice. All right, on to the next thing, right? <laughs> There's questions and discoveries everywhere that need to be, and, and the world is charged with questions and discoveries. And let me just tell you this. The people who get the most out of reading the Bible are not the people who are, are filled with answers. It's the people who are filled with questions who get the most out of reading the Bible. And they come to the Bible with all kinds of questions, and in there they find strange and beautiful things that are mysterious. And when you have questions and you find strange answers that turn out to be true, the experience of that is joy and pleasure. And what happens is when you have a life that is filled with discoveries, your life is then filled with wonder. And I think that in the Bible, you know, that's the essence of what joy is. Joy is wonder. And it, what, who's more wonderful than God himself, the very creator, the deep reality be- behind the universe and our own lives, that you could actually know him. And that he, he's always going to be fresh. He's always going to be new. And what this means, though, the fact that um, true joy is a discovery. It's something that you come upon, you find. It doesn't mean that the Bible says that it is your job now to go find God. Because that's not actually how it works. How it works is actually God litters your life with all kinds of things about him and discoveries. He litters you with people who are Christians and talk to you about God. Or, you know, maybe it's a sermon. Or maybe it's just things in his world. You know, the psalmist says that, that the whole creation is charged with God's glory. And so if your life is not filled with wonder and this joy and a sense of discoveries, the reason for that is because we are not seeing the discoveries that he's littered our life with. And why don't we see them? Okay, well, this is the third truth we learn about true joy, is that true joy is a treasure. Okay, true joy is hidden. True joy is a discovery. Third, true joy is a treasure. And, you know, it's interesting that in this passage, Jesus describes life in his kingdom and finding, you know, this joy in his kingdom as finding these, these objects of wealth. These, you know, he compares life with him as things that are like treasures. And that's because um, all of us have things in our lives that are the deepest treasures in our lives. Uh, things that we're ultimately devoted to. Things that we have a tight grip on. Things that we look to for security that, uh, that give us ultimate happiness and contentment. Um, when we're in trouble, we look to them to protect us. We look to them to affirm us, to say that we're good and that we're someone. And all of these things are precious to us. They are precious. And um, they promise you joy. And, you know, that's a question for all of us to ask. What are those things in our life that we look to that ultimately this is the thing that will give me joy? What are those treasures um, and the question is, why do we pursue these things? Why is it, because all, all of you have them, okay? All of us, even as Christians, even, we have, even if you're Christians and God is your ultimate treasure, you have other things that are competing to be your ultimate treasure. Why do we have those? Because everyone does. You will find something to devote your life to. And it's because you, all of us sense that there is this inner kind of um, profound void. There is an inner emptiness that is inside of us, and, we, and it's because we long to have a master. We long to have something that we worship, that we give our lives to, that we sacrifice for, that we long to have a God. 
You are made to be a worshiper, and you will find something to worship that is your ultimate treasure, that is worth ultimate value to you. What is it? And those things come to us often when we experience pleasure, right? There are all kinds of pleasures where, you know, maybe you have a nice evening with, you know, it's a a summer evening that's warm and you're with your friends and everyone's laughing, you're having good food and you say, you know, this is joy, this is what life's about. And you say, I finally found it. And you try to grab onto it and it, it disappears, it doesn't say, you know. Or you have a success at work or in your, uh, in your vocation. You say, finally, I've attained something, and you feel this sense of attainment. Or, you know, just even in the creation. You know, you look at God's beautiful creation. I, you know, I think of uh, my, my parents have this green belt in their backyard. And one of the things I used to love to do is I, my dad has this electric, you know, uh, hedge thing. And it would just get all wild, and they had a trail that they'd need me to clear out. And I'd just, you know, and, you know, get some headphones on. But there was this one spot in in this green belt where uh, there was just this wild patch of mint. And I don't know if you've ever taken an electric hedger through a bush of mint, but there's, it just sprays out this beautiful sweetness of smell and freshness. It just comes out. And I don't know, something about that. It's just like, wow, beautiful. And you try to get the pangs of joy that are all around our life. And so we try to grab onto them and we say, yes, I can have joy in this life, and they're not lasting. And the reason is because God has given us all these things to lead us to him. When the mint hits me, I'm supposed to say, wow, God invented this. He's beautiful. He loves me. When I'm with my friends, it's supposed to lead me to him and to say, you're my true treasure. These are gifts from your hands. They are only lasting joys if they lead us to the one who's eternal. These are only lasting joys if God is our ultimate and true treasure. And... uh, there's a, a song that um, I've been listening to this last week. Nathan Partain is a singer-songwriter who's uh, uh, Daniel and Bethany's brother-in-law. And you should look him up, uh, Google him, uh, Nathan Partain. He has this new song called uh, For His Own Sake. I want to read you a, a few of the verses. This is what he says. I have seen the bright birth of the morning. I have worked through the sweat of the day. I have laughed as the summer rains poured down from heaven and I've harvested oceans of grain. So there's this beautiful picture of abundant life of blessing. And then the second verse says this, I have worked and I've worked and had nothing. I have prayed and I've prayed but no rain. I have lost to the fire, storm, and locust and woke up to find all my land left in shame. So this, this life of just loss. He describes, I've, I've had blessing, I've had tr- profound loss, and this is what the chorus says. Still, each morning and noon and in evening, I will trust my Lord and bless his name, never seeking the gain but the giver. Never seeking the gain but the giver. So I love him for nothing but for his own sake. Never seeking the gain but the giver. When, we, when our treasures are things in this earth and they don't lead us past them to our true treasure, um, we're loving the gain but not the giver. And it is the giver that is the, the, the true joy. And um, it is this hidden joy that is filled with wonder and discovery and it is God himself. And he says that this is, this is what true life is. Okay. Now what happens to us when we are people who say, you know, my true joy is, is actually, it is, my deepest treasure is my creator, the God who made me, the one who gives meaning to my life. What happens when he becomes your 
this well of joy inside of you. Well, this is the fourth thing that we see in this passage, is the result that true joy leads to sacrifice. True joy leads to sacrifice, right? Because of verse, uh, verse 44, um, then, in the second half of verse 44, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has. In his joy he sells all that he has. Joy is the thing that enables a person to live a radical life, a sacrificial life, a generous life. And, um, you know, of course, a life of sacrificial love is the life that God is calling us into as Christians. That's the life he wants to give you. He wants to bless you with a life where you could actually give your life away, that you could actually die for others like Jesus died for you. That's what he wants to bless you with. And the only way to do that is to have a joy, to have a cup that is overflowing. And when your cup is overflowing, it is not hard to sacrifice because you know that God is going to abundantly care for you because he loves you. And um, this was true for Jesus as well. How did Jesus go to the cross? It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He saw the joy. There was joy that motivated him. Nehemiah 8, the joy of the Lord is our strength. You cannot love people without joy in your life. Do you know that? You can't love people without joy in your life. Because do you feel loved by people who don't have joy, who are dour, who are uh, complaining, who are bitter all the time. Do we feel loved by that? No. Right? I, I had a seminary professor. He told a, a, a story about a, um, a woman whose house he was going over for, to, for dinner. She had, she had planned this dinner, and she was trying to be hospitable and, and feed all these people. And so he came over, and it turned out she had uh, set this table you know, with a, all these ornaments on here and this china and everything, and every place was set perfectly, and there was this... Uh, uh, tablecloth, and she had everyone circled around, and everyone was supposed to sit in their certain spots. She was very serious about the way that she was uh, caring for this meal. And it was almost, he was just saying it was almost uncomfortable, right? She's going to all this work. It seems like she's sacrificing, but is it more for us? Is it for her? And during the meal, it turns out that someone actually knocked over a glass of red wine all over her nice tablecloth. And she makes everyone get up and say, everyone stand up, I need to redo the whole table. She makes everyone wait to eat their food while she clears the whole table. And it seems like she's sacrificing, but it is this joyless sacrificing. And without joy, good deeds actually become dead. There's no life in them. There's no love in them. And to live a life of sacrificial love, we must have that true joy living inside of us. And... Um, so what that tells us, and this is, uh, this is that's, that's four, four things, that true joy is hidden, true joy is a discovery, it's a wonder, true joy is a treasure better than all the treasures in this world, it leads us into all the other treasures of the world, true joy is the only thing that leads us to loving sacrifice, so that means we must have it. It is imperative that we have it, and so this is uh, because I, for some of you, you may say, wow, true joy, a life of wonder and discovery and sacrificial love, I want that but I don't have it. Well, Jesus says, the fifth thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus warns us that true joy is actually the essence of truly being human. Which is to say, if you don't know the joy that God has on offer for us, you are actually missing the very essence of your existence. If you don't know the joy that God has on offer for you, you are missing the essence of, uh, of your existence. Now, uh, these first two parables 
um, obviously go together, right? There's these two parables. This guy he finds this field with the treasure in it. He sells everything for it. This guy he finds a pearl. There's, uh, he sells everything for this, pearl, for this pearl. And yet, there's this third parable that doesn't seem to fit in, right? It doesn't seem to fit in. Uh, and yet, Jesus understands this parable to fit in with the other two. And this, because in verse 47, look at what he says in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. Again, right? So he says that the first parable, he says the kingdom of heaven is like this. Again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Verse 47, again, and this is what he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so this parable feels a little out of place, right? It's a sermon on joy, and then all of a sudden there's fiery furnace and people being thrown out with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like, where'd the joy go? Okay, um, what Jesus is describing here, right? He's describing the final judgment. And he says that at the end of the age, there will be this separating out of the evil from the righteous. What does Jesus mean by that? This separating out of the evil from the righteous. Because who are these people? Who are the evil and the righteous? Well, uh, the Bible says that actually all people are evil, right? Actually, earlier in the uh, Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says to his disciples, if you, who are evil, know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how, do, how much more does your Father in Heaven? He calls his own disciples evil. <laughs> And so who are the people that are, are the righteous? If all of us are, uh, are evil, if all are sinners, how can Jesus say that some are evil and some are righteous? Well, I think we have to look at those other two parables, right? The righteous are the people in the other two parables. Those, the righteous are not those who have lived perfect lives and never sinned. That's none of us. We don't even come close to that. The righteous are the people who have found that the treasures in this world fail them and have found that God is the only treasure that is worth seeking after, ultimately. He's the only eternal treasure. Their joy is not in the fleeting pleasures, but in an eternal joy. And Jesus is saying that this is the defining thing. This is the thing that God is, is sorting out. Who has found that joy? Who has tasted that joy that is in me? That is the thing that separates the evil and the righteous. And which says then, that there is a certain seriousness about finding joy in your life. There is an urgency to it. That Jesus is saying right here, we need to wake up. If you are wandering through your life and just letting it pass by and you don't have the joy of God in your life, Jesus is saying that we're lost. And we need to wake up and look at our own lives and take it seriously. This is a, to quote Chesterton again. One can hardly think too little of oneself. One can hardly think too much of one's soul. What is the state of your soul? And I know this. For some of you, these words from Jesus are harsh, right? People being thrown out and the, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. But it's really important what he says. Because look at verse 49 again. So it will be at the close of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. Actually, you know what this says? In Greek, literally, it says it will separate out the evil from the midst of the righteous. 
And what Jesus is talking about is that God is going to come again and this joy that is in the Lord, when God is going to come and flood the creation with his presence, there is going to be a new age in the world where the very defining reality of the world is joy with the Lord. And if you say, I don't want joy with the Lord, there will come a time where God will say to you, you can have what you want. If, if bitterness, entitlement, being my own God, God says, if that's what you want, eventually you will have it. But being your own God is completely joyless. And you will go into eternity being your own God alone. And you will never have this joy. And so he says, we need to soberly look at our own souls and say, have I pursued this joy? Has this, made, has this been my pursuit? Do I know this? Now, I know that some of you will hear that. And you'll say, wow, I'm struggling with joy this week. Uh, I'm a Christian. I'm struggling with joy. Is that what you're saying? That if, if, if I'm not feeling joyful, I need to be worried about my eternal state if I'm going to have a place with God? If you hear me saying that, you're missing the point. Because this is, and I'll, let me clarify that in the last point. Because the sixth point that we see in this passage is that where does true joy come from? True joy comes only from the gospel. True joy comes only from the gospel. Because, you know, actually I've heard a number of commentators and preachers talking about this passage. And what they said was, you know, you look at these parables about this guy who finds this treasure in the field and he sells all that he has to get the treasure, right? And this other one who finds this pearl of great price and he sells all that he has to get the pearl of great price. And if you ask, you know, well, who in the Bible sold all that he had to get the treasure... Who would we answer? We wouldn't say that's us. Who says it's Jesus? And they say, you know what? You're not the one who's going to sell all that you have. Jesus is the one who sold all you have, and you're the treasure. You're the thing he was buying with his own life. It was for the joy set before him, he endured the cross for you. And so the question is, which is it, right? Who's selling all they have? Is it Jesus or is it us? And the answer is, of course, both. This parable is not about Jesus. It's not about us. It's about the kingdom. And what Jesus says is, this is what my whole kingdom is about. Is the king gives his life. He sells all that he has so that he, he can have you, so that you can sell all that you have to have him. My life for yours. My life for yours. That's the principle of joy in God's kingdom. May that joy mark us as a church as we look at our Savior who sold all that he had that we might be his treasure. And when we realize that first, he sold all that he had even while we were joyless so that he might have us. When we realize that, we have this true joy. Let's pray together. Our Lord, Lord, you know our hearts. That we long to have a joy in you. Lord, may we not be discouraged by our joylessness, but I pray for those who are here that you would welcome them into your life. To know that in you there is discovery. In know you there is pleasure. To know in you there is delight, eternal delight that can't be taken a deep joy that endures through even the miseries of this life. 
And so um, I pray uh, that your spirit would guide us into that joy. And I pray for those who are here who may not know you, who may not know that there is joy in Christ. I pray that your spirit would guide them into faith and into his arms now. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.